0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, you'd open up to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning as uh, or before church was uh, beginning, I was standing with Joel downstairs and I've shared the story every service cuz he preached to me a little bit this morning. I was reveling in having driven in the sunshine yesterday in my Classic V-dub bug by myself. It was awesome around the lake. And Joel said, Yeah, but the rain is good too. And I'm like, Eh, whatever. And he said, No, I view it like a trial. I said, Okay, what do you mean? And he said, That which seems gloomy and dark and wet, kind of uh, in the Pacific Northwest, it produces some of the most beautiful things. I'm like, Uh oh, Joel, that's pretty good, right? And in the midst of this pandemic, you know, and all this stuff that's going on, I think I too can get lost in the difficulty of the trial and not finding joy in that which is maybe becoming or will be very beautiful. And so thank you, Joel. He preached a little bit to me this morning. He probably should have preached this morning, but I shared it with you. Because I'm going to talk about something I do think is beautiful, and it's going through a little bit of a trial, and that's the church. Uh, this morning we are continuing our series titled Together, and it's a sermon series designed to teach about, yes, the meaning of covenant membership, but really what it truly means to be a part of a local church. Now, the Bible teaches, as I shared last week, that the church is the chosen people of God, the called out ones of the world who are assembled together. And this family of families is invisible And it's global, but at the same time, it is quite visible and local. Now, what primarily binds a group of local believers together in a local church is a shared covenant or a shared commitment to one another to be God's people in a particular place. That's primarily what binds a church together. And though this commitment is foundational, it is the foundational part of our identity as the church, it's not the only thing that that local people commits to together. This shared commitment also includes and I think requires a shared confession, which is what I want to talk about today. Now simply defined, a confession is a declaration of believed truth. And to confess means to declare or to acknowledge or to profess or to admit. And one confesses when they openly and often publicly declare what they are convinced to be true. Now verbal confessions are good. But written confessions are even better because they endure as many things around change. Now the opposite of a confession is either passive silence or active denial of certain truths. And regardless of the content of a given confession, doesn't have to be a Christian, a secular, any confession at all, a shared confession of any kind amongst a specific people in a specific place serves some very important purposes. First, it provides clarity to what you actually believe as a group. Second, a confession fosters unity, because we know what we believe. And third, a confession ensures purity, as, again, many things change, but a confession does not. Now, when we do talk about a Christian confession... A Christian confession, a Christian declaration, does accomplish those same things and more. So we have a church confession. Restoration Road has a confession of sorts. It is represented partially in the written covenant that members sign and and voice when they become members. It also, this confession, is fully explained in our official doctrinal statement. You can read an explanation of every doctrine that we hold as a church in our confession. And then we have the membership class that comprehensively explains what it means and why we believe what we believe. And so essentially, our confession is a theological shorthand to proclaim the different beliefs that we share as a church body. Now, the first words of our membership covenant... So we have a covenant that we sign, that we recite at the beginning of members' meetings. It is the, the first statement in that covenant is the, is the one that sounds the most confessional, and I'll read it to you. It says this, Jesus has saved us from death to life. In response to the sovereign grace of God the Father, we have repented, believed, and been baptized. Relying on the help of the Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. So, this part, this statement in our covenant represents a shared confession that everyone who becomes a member of our church confesses and declares to be true. And it's packed full of stuff. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to have a confession as a church? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but the importance of such a confession is directly related to the importance of membership in a church. And here's what I mean by that. We believe that the membership is an affirmation of faith based on a confession of belief in certain truths. So membership is an affirmation of faith based on a confession of certain truths. And what that means is this, by accepting someone into membership, and that is not something in our church that just the elders do. The entire church accepts, approves, receives someone into membership. And by doing that, the church, not just the elders, the church is affirming you are a Christian. And the church is also affirming that we are bound together. We are unified because we are uniform in certain essential truths. We hold these same truths together, which binds us together in unity, and we affirm that we believe these things. In other words, in order to become a member of our church, every prospective member must confess to being a Christian. Now, you think that would go without saying these days, but these days it doesn't. It is very easy to become a member of a church. So every prospective member must confess to being a Christian. But, in order to confess to being a Christian, every person must confess faith in certain truths. And this represents what is our shared confession. Now, a shared Christian confession not only brings clarity, not only brings unity, and not only maintains purity, a Christian confession, whether it be ours or another church, if you read it carefully with your Bible, you will see that it identifies that people who've made that confession as either orthodox or heretical. As either scriptural and biblical or philosophical. As either historic and connected with early church, specifically the teaching of the apostles, or it's cultural. That confession will reveal all of those things. And so among all the things, and there are many, that Christians can debate and disagree over, when we talk about our shared confession, we're talking about the things that we have to divide over. That we say, this is what we believe, and we are closed-handed about that. Now, what that means is that when you make a confession, especially confessions that are written, they're not just meaningless documents. In fact, they are very important, unchanging boundary markers to help navigate a culture that is devoted to what many call movementism. There's always a new movement, a movement in the church, a movement outside the church. And so as everything changes, the confessions that we hold to help us navigate that. Now, the idea of a written confession is nothing that we made up as a church. We weren't like special. It's not new. It's been around for a very long time, like first century Christianity. So you may have heard of something called the Apostles' Creed. If you haven't, you should look it up. It's an old creed. It's actually based on an older creed called the Old Roman Creed. And the Old Roman Creed was verbally kind of confessed. And again, if you're talking about a confession, a certain body of truth, which I'll read for you in a second. But the, the Old Roman Creed was something that was confessed in the first century and then codified... In written down in about the 4th century. And here's what it says. This is the old Roman creed, which gave birth to the Apostles' Creed. They're very similar. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So it's a confession of belief. And in Christ Jesus' his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the Lord, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, Whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remissions of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. That might sound familiar to you if you have any connection with the Apostles' Creed if you heard it before. So an early commentator, like a Bible scholar, like really early, like fourth century early, like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, about the Apostles' Creed, based on this Roman Creed. He said that the apostles had actually written this at Pentecost as they were leaving Jerusalem to go proclaim the gospel. Whether that's true or not, who knows. But that's a very old commentator saying this had significance, this had meaning, this actually may have actually come from the apostles' hands themselves. And ultimately, if nothing else, the apostles' creed represents some form of what the early church would consider essential faith. The rule of faith. The the box, if you will, of Christian beliefs that every Christian must confess. The core teachings, if you will, of the apostles are found in the Apostles' Creed. Not every teaching, but that which was core and essential. The New Testament, if you were to survey it, seems to imply this idea of confession. This idea of like, there's a group of teachings that we are to uh, you know, recognize as essential to Christianity. And so I'm going to give you a really quick rundown. I'm not going to give you the full verse, but the references. You can look them up yourself. But this is where you get this idea of a confession that we didn't make up, that it's been around for some time. In Hebrews chapter 10, particularly verse 23, Christians are called to hold fast to a confession. Literally confessing certain things about Jesus. In Jude chapter 3, Christians are told to fight or to contend for this confession or for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Christians are told to guard this confession in 2 Timothy chapter 1 as if there's something that you've been entrusted with and you need to care for and guard. Christians are told to stand firm in this confession. In 2 Thessalonians 2, like stand in something, remain in something. Don't be swayed otherwise. And then lastly, in 2 Timothy 2, and there are others, Christians are told to share, to pass on, to teach a certain confession, certain essential truths, teach other men who would teach other men, like there's something being passed on. And we go, what is that something? It certainly can't be everything. There's got to be some essential truths that all Christians are to confess. And so if we at least acknowledge that there is a Christian confession, that will lead us to the next, like, well, what is the Christian confession then? So simply, and I'll unpack it a little bit, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It is what the Bible describes as the power of God for salvation. That's the gospel. You remember, perhaps, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in prison in Philippi. He's with Silas. They're chained up, and the earthquake happens. And the prison doors open up, and they don't leave. And the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself because he believes the prisoners have all escaped. Paul's like, whoa, 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 we're still here, man. Everyone's here. And he's so moved, he brings Paul and Silas home. And he asks them this question. The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response is simply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. So the implication is that salvation is not rooted in, in all these things you confess. Christians confess a lot of things today. They confess things politically. They confess things socially. They confess things morally, ethically. All kind. Primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, salvation is based in believing and confessing certain truths about Jesus. Now, what are these certain truths? What must every member confess to be a member? Or more importantly, what must every Christian confess to be a Christian? 1 Corinthians 15. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Here's what Paul writes. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, if you kind of look at this text, you will notice that it has a little bit of an organization to it. It reads like a confession. It reads as if it is written, perhaps just familiar to Paul, as if it's written, though, to be remembered, even memorized, and then taught, and then ultimately guarded. These truths represented in this text are the hills that Christians are to die on. It's shocking how many hills Christians are choosing these days to die on that are not the hills God has called us to die on. Putting their flags in places that may be important but not essential. This represents what is essential. This represents what is so important that we will divide over it and die over it. Now, there are many important things that Paul teaches throughout his 13 letters. Half the New Testament. But what he says here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the gospel he delivered here was of first importance. Most important, supremely important. And he even says the teaching was not some something he just made up. It was not from human origin. He received it from revelation, namely directly from Jesus Christ. Acceptance of the gospel is much more than some intellectual assertion of the mind. It is more than just an emotional, momentary declaration of the mouth. It is a spiritual confession of the heart. Now, in this passage, there are certain confessed truths. Some are very explicit and some are implied. And so I want to break it down to four basic confessions that every member of our church must confess and every Christian must confess. The first, the Christian confession, the Christian confession, begins with a confession of authority. Maybe you were expecting that. A confession of authority. What do I mean by that? In our text, did you notice that Paul repeatedly appeals to Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of the Gospel? He doesn't appeal to what he thinks. He doesn't appeal to what he feels. He doesn't appeal to what he experiences in order to dictate his reality. He appeals to what God says has said Christians believe that God is a speaking God who by His Spirit revealed Himself in human words. And these inspired words, God-breathed words, the very words of God are preserved in 66 books called the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. This is what Christians believe. They believe that this is the record of God's redemptive, saving work in the world. They believe that the Bible, as originally given, is infallible, is inerrant, and it serves as the supreme authority in all matters of belief and behavior. Confession of authority. True Christians believe what the Bible promises. Christians affirm what the Bible affirms. Christians obey what the Bible commands. Christians condemn what the Bible condemns, even when it is countercultural or counterintuitive. What do I mean by that? There are some things that the Bible declares that don't feel good. There are some things the Bible teaches that are confusing to comprehend. But our authority isn't our intellect. Our authority isn't our emotion. Our authority is not our experience. Our authority is the Word of God. The Word reads us. The Word teaches us, the Word encourages us, it admonishes us, it tests us, it corrects us, it informs us, and it leads us in all the truth of God toward the fullness of joy that God promises. The truthfulness of this confession is not by our arrival at understanding everything and being perfect. The truth of our confession, that we confess the authority of God's Word, is that we perpetually, relentlessly, consistently return to the word of God to test all things. We're always saying, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say? You see, all other parts of this confession are dependent upon that first part. It is the where that we look to to understand our reality. It is where we look to understand what is actually true about the place we find ourselves. All that we know about God, all that we need to know about sin, all that we need to know about salvation is found in God's Word. There are many things that are very black and white in Scripture. Not everything. There are Mysteriously gray areas in Scripture. But guess what? God is very black and white on how to deal with those gray areas. So even that is governed by the supremacy and authority of God's Word. So second, according to Scripture, because that's where it begins, the Christian confession includes a confession of sin. Now, Paul writes that Jesus died for a reason. And that reason was our sins. There's all kinds of implications connected with that, personally and communally as the world. You see, the gospel is good news as long as you understand and acknowledge the bad news. To be a Christian, you must believe that The core issue where everything went wrong was Genesis chapter 3 when mom and dad, Adam and Eve, decided to disobey God's word. It didn't matter what the word was. He could have said, don't ever pick your nose. For in the day you pick your nose, you shall surely die. It didn't matter. Really? Just picking your nose? It's not that big a deal. Come on. It was a big deal because God had said it. And so, to confess sin is to believe that in rejecting God's good and authoritative word, the world broke. that sin entered the world through that one choice, and death came with sin. Our relationship with God was broken as a result of disobedience, and that the chasm that was Created between God and man is too vast for any man to overcome. So because of Adam's sin, we are sinners by nature. But guess what? We do just fine by choice. We willfully choose to turn our back on God and we become guilty as we try to seek answers to identity and purpose and truth apart from him. And interestingly, in pursuit of that truth, which the world seeks after, people are miserable but they try to convince themselves otherwise. We find and we believe that we are living in a world that is enslaved to sin, addicted to idols, indebted to God, sentenced to die, unwilling and unable to pay the wages necessary to save sinners and to fix what is broken, namely the relationship with God. Essentially, everyone seeks their own glory and falls short of God's standard. And if you confess the first part then you do believe that the only standard that matters is God's and that God's standard is not dependent on what you think what you feel or what you want or what you experience I wish it was honestly life in this world at least in terms of getting along with everybody might be easier if God didn't say certain things but he does And so we use his standard to measure what is good and what is bad, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And he declares certain things unrighteous. But at the core of a confession of sin is really this basic truth, that man's greatest problem doesn't reside out there. That man's greatest problem resides there in here and that is something that man cannot fix the truthfulness of this kind of a confession like how do I know I've really confessed sin well I'll tell you it's not evidenced by practicing religious piety it's actually acknowledged by acknowledging spiritual poverty By admitting weakness, admitting brokenness, even confessing rebellion. This is why Paul can say, I am the least of the apostles. I am the chief of all sinners, he says. He understands who he is, apart from Christ and who he is in Christ. So the third of four, the confession of sin is the why of our confession. And the why is, well, we need a Savior. And that's what leads us to the who. Like, I am in a, I'm in a pickle. I, 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 am, I am broken beyond my ability to fix. I need relationship with God, but I can't fix my... What a, You need a Savior. You need someone outside of you who can fix what we broke. So according to Scripture, the Christian confession includes a confession of the person of Christ. And what is a confession of Christ? Well, a confession of Christ is literally a statement typically made with a mouth about who Jesus is. I believe the most important question that anyone can ever answer who is ever born before they die is, who is Jesus? There's your great evangelistic tool. I never know what to say. Just ask him who Jesus is. To be a Christian, you must confess that Jesus is more than just a good teacher, more than just a wise sage, more than just a heroic martyr of some kind. According to Scripture, Jesus is much more than that. And according to Scripture, there's lots of false Jesuses out there. 2 Corinthians 11 says there's another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. John the Apostle says the same thing in his epistles. Everyone wants to make Jesus into their own image. Christians affirm that the Bible says Jesus is in every way. And according to Scripture, Jesus is, yes, fully human, but much more than that. Christians must believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God that we worship. God incarnate, creator of the universe, all things visible and invisible. That he is the rescuer that God sends because he loves the world. That he is the servant example we follow and he is the king whom we must all obey. And the truthfulness of this confession is not merely by saying, oh, Jesus is Savior. You can't confess Jesus as Savior of the mouth if you're not confessing with your life that he's Lord. You can even confess He's Lord with your mouth. Jesus talks about that. Is Jesus truly the Son of God? Is He truly the Creator? Is He truly Master and King of your life and all the universe? That's what a confession of Christ is. And Why is that so important? Which is our fourth one. If you don't confess the true Jesus, the cross is robbed of its power. Because if it's just a man hanging on the cross, that's just tragic. But if it's the Son of God, and God's blood is being shed, that's transformational. Confessing who Jesus truly is determines the true meaning of everything He did. And that's why... According to Scripture, a confession of Christ must include a confession of His death and His resurrection. So let me be clear what we're confessing. Though foolish to the world, and it is foolish to the world, the good news centers on the cross and the resurrection. The Gospel teaches us that by His grace, undeserved favor towards sinners, already confessed that, God reaches out to those who refuse to listen and loves them. It's important to remember John 3.16. It wasn't for God so hated the world, He killed His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. By grace, He sacrifices His Son, the perfect sinless One, crucifying Him on the cross for the sins of men, paying the price that we could not. And by grace, through His willing sacrifice, Jesus redeems us, atones for our sins, and through His resurrection, frees us from slavery and darkness, and sin. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. More than that, we are not just deemed innocent, we are deemed righteous, as Jesus' perfect life is given to us. No longer under wrath. All of our sins covered. Evil is defeated, death is conquered, and those who were once dead in their sins are made alive through what? The resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. And if we believe it as Christians and it's not true, we are fools. But it is true. That's the heart of Christianity. And by trusting in what Jesus alone has done on the cross for our salvation, not in anything that we can achieve or earn, God makes us holy and blameless and free of all stain or wrinkle that sin might have created. We are reconciled to God and we enter into this relationship again, adopted as His children forever, irrevocably. This is the gospel. And the truthfulness of our confession is not just that I believe the gospel, as much as it's evidenced by our actual repentance. And our baptism. You ever wonder why we require baptism as a condition for membership? Baptism, in our view, A, it's commanded. B, it is the most tangible proclamation of the gospel to be made publicly that there is. In our culture we've kind of lost a sense of the value and the importance of baptism but you go into other cultures and other parts of the world and as people convert to christianity out of other religions and other faiths families will often tolerate say oh you can believe what you want just don't get baptized because baptize is a full immersion of one's life it is a full identification that what and who i was is dead buried with jesus and it has risen to new life in Christ. That is why it is part of the confession. The most powerful, if you will, part of the confession. So let me just tie this up at the end here. Because there are many other things that the elders would think most Christians ought to believe. I'm not talking about those things. But they do exist. The things that we are talking about this morning are the few things that all Christians must confess to be a Christian and a member of our church. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Think of all the other things Paul could have taught. All the other things you could have known among them. He said this was most important, Jesus. Again, the first statement of our covenant is this, the first word, Jesus. Jesus has saved us from death to life. There's sin. In response to the sovereign grace of God the Father, we have repented, believed, and been baptized. Relying on the help of the Holy Spirit, we solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. There's nothing clever in these words. This comes out of passages like 1 Corinthians 15. But there is great power in these words. Especially as we confess them together. Why is it so important to confess them together? Well, those who confess, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Also, as I said, confess, I am a sinner saved by the gracious love of a Savior who lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I deserved. only those who who know they're forgiven like that can forgive only know those who truly know that kind of love can love only those who know that kind of grace can show a radical amount of grace even to your enemies Paul understands grace at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 he says this But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Did you know that our shared confession certainly is theological and doctrinal, but ultimately it is a declaration of the grace we share. The grace we share. Everyone who wishes to be a covenant member of our church They must confess the Bible is true, that sin is real, that Jesus is the crucified Lord, and that the resurrection proves it. But this is what's most important about that confession. The intimacy of our fellowship is dependent upon such a confession. The intimacy of our fellowship is dependent upon such a confession. Those who make this confession please hear this part. Those who make this confession declare that their primary, not only, their primary identity is this. One who is loved by God. One who is loved by God. You know the Apostle John wrote that the only reason we can love is because God in Christ first loved us. And what that tells me is that a Christian confession at its core is a declaration that you know the love of God in Christ. And why is this so important in membership? Because of this. Knowing the love of Christ is the only thing that makes our love for one another possible. Knowing the love of Christ is the only thing that makes our love for one another possible. It is that which helps us to bear all things and to believe all things and to hope all things and to endure all things for those we have committed to and covenanted with. That is our shared confession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your incredible love toward us. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to center our minds, our hearts, on that which is of first importance, namely the gospel. That you'll not allow any other truths, any other hills that are of secondary importance, govern our lives, but our primary identity as those loved by God will be the governing force and the power to truly love one another. Thank you, Jesus, for this church. Thank you for our shared commitment. Thank you for our shared confession. I pray, Lord, we will be known as a people who truly know your love and who truly love one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.